every year at this time, we jump into the middle of a story that's been told for hundreds of years. It's a story of cities decorating their streets and their sidewalks. It's a story of trees and ornaments and fireplaces, of gifts and wrapping paper and ribbons. There's expectation and wonder and hope, a deep hope that drives us back to the beginning of the story. Because it all starts here. It starts in a manger with a baby and an angel and a scared teenaged girl in love with a misunderstood young man who thinks she's worth it. It's about a child who will bring light into darkness, joy into despair, revealing a God who will redeem it all. A God who is leaving the glory of heaven to pursue the glory of a cross. A God who is becoming flesh and blood and skin. A God who is loving and offering all people a pathway back into the relationship for which they were created. It's too rich to comprehend and too beautiful to dismiss. This is Christmas. This is the story of stories. And it all starts here. Well, it all starts here. Merry Christmas, Liquid Church. Can we give a big shout out to all the campuses joining us around the state of New Jersey? It's Christmas Eve. Boy, we're glad you're here. We're going to celebrate tonight. If you are a first-time guest or you're a visitor, boy, you are most welcome. We're going to celebrate big time here. It is Christmas Eve at Liquid Church. If you're new, you should know we are actually one church, but we meet in six locations around the state, what we call campuses. So we need to say hello to campuses in Morris, Union, Essex, Middlesex, and Somerset counties. Welcome them one more time. We're glad you guys are with us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey. Now, you just saw a great video with a really beautiful nativity scene. How many of you have a nativity scene in the town where you live? Okay, you have a town like, you know, they put a nativity scene up in the center. Okay, cool. Yeah, all right. Uh, that's, it's kind of controversial, right? Like, you know, it's like, you know, do we put a nativity scene up? In the town where I live, they put up a life-size nativity. Take a look at that thing in front of the municipal building. And I know that's kind of controversial, you know, do you put up the nativity or not? Um, in fact, I don't know if you heard this. It's actually kind of sad. There is no nativity seen in Washington, D.C. this Christmas. Did you hear this? The Supreme Court actually ruled there will be no nativity scene in our nation's capital. Kind of sad, right? Sign of the times, yeah. No, it's not, uh, it's not for religious reasons. Uh, they looked all over Washington and just couldn't find three wise men. So that was just kind of, hey, hey, hey. Five, three, wake up. Couldn't find three wise men or a virgin. Uh, so, hey, whoa, whoa, hey, hey. But they did find a couple of jackasses, I think, in the stable. No, hey, now I'm waking you up. I know, it's Christmas Eve. I want to see if you're awake. I'm glad you are. I like nativity in our town because it's actually kind of rustic. They use, like, real straw in the nativity. It's very old-fashioned. And, you know, you always see the familiar cast of characters that make you feel comfortable. There's, you know, Mary and Joseph, Jesus in the center. Of course, on the side, you have the shepherds who are watching their flocks by night. And, of course, over here, you see these three guys are kind of wearing crowns and turbans. They ride the camels. They are the three wise men. Yeah. And it's funny because on Christmas Eve, we kind of rush past these familiar faces from the Christmas story, 
But I found myself kind of wondering, like, who were these wise men really, you know? And what made them so wise? Like, what did they know that we don't know? And so this week, I went back searching for answers in the original Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2. Right out of the Bible tonight, I want to read the original Christmas story from Matthew 2 and really focus on these three guys, the three wise men. And I'm going to read this straight out of Scripture, but we'll also put verses on the side screen so you can follow along too. Now, here's the deal. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. It's actually called the Gospel. It's an eyewitness account uh, written around 80 or 90 BC, or 80, I should say, after Christ's death, obviously. And, and Matthew actually writes this. He says, after Jesus was born in where? Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, it may surprise you to know this is actually the only mention of the magi or the wise men in the entire Bible. They're very mysterious. They enter in verse 1, and they exit by verse 12, and they leave this trail of unanswered questions behind, like, you know, who, who were the wise men, and, and, and where exactly in the east did they come from? How many, how many wise men were there? There were three, right? Notice Matthew actually never mentions a number, and he never mentions riding camels. Uh, what is this star they saw, and how did they know it would guide them to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve? And most of all, how did they know this baby named Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews? There is a lot of mystery and tradition surrounding the wise men, and over the centuries, legends have kind of grown up around them. In fact, in the Middle Ages, you'll be surprised to know they were actually given names. Caspar, uh, Melchio, and Balthazar. They were venerated as saints in the Middle Ages. And I was stunned this week to find out how much art they've inspired in the Western world. Not just paintings like this one. All kinds of art around the world. In fact, here's a mosaic from a 6th century basilica in Italy. Now take a look at these guys. You can see them following the star in the upper right corner. Do you see it? And when I saw this one, I was like, these guys clearly are from New Jersey. This guy... <laughs> Look, this guy's wearing leopard print yoga pants, okay? That's like, if that doesn't say LuLaRoe, New Jersey, okay? Uh, here are the magi carved into marble on the side of a tomb in the cemetery of St. Agnes in Rome. This is from the 4th century, and you see the camels there, right? They kind of look like Star Wars tauntauns. Uh, this is a famous painting from the Renaissance. This is called Adoration of the Magi by Gentile de Fabriano, in 1423, you can see it's very ornate gold leaf, actually, paint on wood. Very, very beautiful. Uh, this is a Gothic tapestry. So this is actually a rug you're looking at, okay? Wo that's a high thread count right there, okay? This, is, this was woven in Oxford, England, commissioned in the 1800s. And then finally, this is a stained glass window from a cathedral in Toronto. Just, just beautiful. And again, I was overwhelmed. There's literally tens of thousands of pieces of art, stories that have been inspired Christian artists down through the ages. But lest you think this is like the stuff of legend today, you can actually visit the shrine of the three kings in Cologne, Germany. You would find this golden sarcophagus that allegedly contains their bones or their remains. It's gilded in complete uh, solid gold. It's very impressive. But that's the largest re relic container in the whole Western world. Now, on Christmas Eve, I was like, though, but... Who were the wise men according to the Bible? 
And what do we learn from their story here in Matthew 2? Because I think some of the details may surprise you, and I think you're going to learn a couple things tonight. First off, notice that the Bible actually calls them magi from the east. Notice that magi, that term magi is actually the root word where we get magician. But these guys were not magicians like David Blaine, okay? They weren't like doing card tricks and like spitting up frogs, okay? Uh, The word magi is a Persian word. It's a special term for a class of priests in ancient Persia. Scholars actually say that they were professional astrologers who studied the stars. Now, we know from other sources that magi actually existed for hundreds of years before the time of Christ. In fact, the Bible, when it says that they came from the east, that's probably ancient Babylon. You know where that is today? That's modern-day Iraq and Iran, okay? And these were highly educated scholars trained in the sciences, in medicine, trained in history, religion, astronomy, and what we would call astrology today. Now, in our day, astrology is kind of seen as superstitious, right? Like reading horoscopes and such. But in that time, astrology was actually connected to man's search for God. These were were professors who studied the skies to find answers to the great philosophical questions of life. Like, who am I? Why are we here? Who, Who created me? And where is history headed? Now, this is interesting. They were professors and philosophers, thoughtful, educated men, and trained advisors to the king of Persia. That's a lot of times why they're thought of as three kings. Their job was to counsel royalty. They actually studied ancient manuscripts from around the world, including the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And their job was actually to think deeply about the meaning of life and provide wise counsel to the king or the ruling class. But in this story, here's a question. What made them actually travel so far? Because the distance between Persia and Jerusalem is over 1,000 miles. And I know this will shock you, but there was no Uber in this day, okay? You kind of had to drop your camel into four-wheel drive, okay, or you had to walk. And so you often see in religious art, you'll see these three kings kind of trekking across the desert, or they're on camels. But Matthew actually never mentions camels. Notice he actually doesn't say there are three of them. And you're like, well, then how many wise men were there? The answer is, we don't actually know. Church tradition typically depicts three because they presented three gifts to the baby Jesus. Gold and, anybody know? Frankincense and myrrh. How many of you thought it was Frankenstein when you were little growing up, right? It's like Christmas, Halloween. Now, we know they traveled hundreds of miles. It might have taken them a nine-month journey. And most likely, they were not alone. (laughs) They probably had an elaborate entourage because they traveled in a caravan, a retinue of servants and supplies to make this journey. And I I don't know how you kind of got here tonight, but they probably made a a royal racket kind of rolling on up in Jerusalem, kind of a spectacle capturing everyone's attention. And what was their mission? They're like, hey, we're here to see the baby. According to all of their study, they knew this baby was born, but they didn't know his name. (laughs) They, They knew a king was born, but they didn't know where. And so they asked for help in verse 2. Look what it says. They asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, this is a verse that has baffled Bible scholars and scientists for 2,000 years. We saw his star. What, What star did they see? And how did they know it was his? Remember, these wise men were students of the sky. And in that age, it was common to associate the birth of a great ruler with strange phenomena in the heavens. And this star was very strange. The Greek word here is 
aster, where we get like asteroid. It's not just star. It's a very bright object. So some scholars say, well, it could have been a meteor. It, meant, it could have mean, uh, referred to a comet. And over the years, there are like four main theories about what this special star was. Some suggest it was actually Halley's Comet. But the earliest appearance of that um, is 11 BC, so it's actually too early for the birth of Christ. Other scientists say, well, maybe it was a supernova. You know, guys, know what a supernova is? It's kind of this exploding star that results in this, you know, brilliant, blinding light. But supernovas are very rare, and there's no record of one in the years surrounding Jesus' birth. Now, the most popular theory is that this was actually caused by a conjunction of planets, in other words, around 5 BC, we have records that Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn all came together in a very rare way. It only happens once every 125 years. And that would explain why the Magi actually saw the star, but the people of Israel didn't. Because a conjunction is not bright like a comet or a supernova, but if you're a wise man, you're trained in astronomy, they would see this triangular conjunction in 5 BC, and they would have been like ex- extraordinary attention to it. But finally, others just simply conclude, they say, you know, we don't have to figure it out. We can just acknowledge this was a supernatural light placed by God in the heavens for the Magi to see and to follow, which has biblical precedence, right? In the Old Testament, God actually has gone on record as kind of revealing himself as a bright light to guide his people. Like when he led Israel through the desert with a pillar of, anybody? Fire, yeah. Regardless of its origin, this star of wonder, star of light, was extraordinary. And watch, this is where you and I get our tradition of placing a star on top of our Christmas tree. Did you ever wonder where that came from? It came from this verse. The idea of placing a star on the Christmas tree is to lead us to the true gift of Christmas, and that is the baby Jesus. Now, who's afraid of a little baby, right? Certainly not these three kings, but did you notice there's four kings in the story? King Herod is a whole nother story. Verse 3 says this, when King Herod heard this, he was, what's the word, church? Disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Historians will tell you that Herod was one of the most ruthless rulers in history. He made people call him Herod the Great, but Herod was great like in the way Stalin was great, the way Hitler was great. He led a ruthless regime marked by murder and brutality and paranoia. He was so paranoid that historians say he saw threats to his throne everywhere. And in fact, Herod, historically, he actually killed his first wife, his second wife, and his third wife, and two of his sons by strangling. He worried they might actually conspire against and steal his throne. And it was said, actually, in Rome, better to be one of Herod's dogs than one of Herod's sons. So this was a violent man. So I want you to imagine the the magic kind of roll up, and they're like, hey, we heard there's a new king. (laughs) New king of the Jews has been born. And when Herod heard this, he was disturbed. (laughs) That word disturbed actually means to shake. He actually shook violently. Herod was all shook up by the news. And so he turned to his scribes for advice. Look at verse 4. When he called together all the people's chief priests, these are the pastors of Israel, the teachers of the law, these are the Bible scholars, he asked them, where the Messiah or chosen one was to be born. And the scribes don't actually have to look it up. They already know the answer. It says, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will what? Will shepherd my people Israel. 
700 years earlier, the Hebrew prophet Micah predicted that the Messiah, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem. That was common knowledge in Israel. Little children actually memorized this verse in Sabbath school before they were six years old. But Herod didn't know it. He actually didn't even suspect it. He's like, what are you talking about? Kings live in castles, not in stables. And they certainly are not born in backwater towns like Bethlehem. Jerusalem was the capital city. Bethlehem was this backwater little podunk town five miles south of it, which sent a message, this child's going to be a different kind of king, amen? Verse 7 says this, Then Herod called the Magi secretly, because that's what jealous and secure rulers do, secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go, search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> right? Now, you and I know what Herod's thinking, right? He's thinking, oh yeah, I'll bring this baby a gift, a long, shiny, sharp one. <laughs> There's this murderous motive in Herod's heart. He is a jealous, insecure man, and he doesn't want any threats to rival his throne. And sure enough, later on in verse 16, it says this, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was what? He was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this is one of the darkest parts of the Christmas story. Herod's slaughter of the innocents. It has been memorialized in Western art. Maybe you didn't see it in this carving, but can you look at it now? Babies being bashed and dashed and stabbed and clubbed in this marble carving. All of this occurred after the wise men left. They were later warned in a dream not to go back to see Herod. They never returned. But notice something interesting. There are actually, there's five kings in this story. There's the the jealous and secure King Herod. Then there's the three kings coming from the east, all converging to see this newborn king in his cradle. And it says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And this is where most of us assume, okay, now we get to Christmas. Okay, this is the manger scene that's on the municipal building lawn, okay? This is where we see the stable where Jesus was born, but it's actually not so. Did you notice? The wise men actually never made it to the stable. How do we know? Look at verse 11. On coming to the what? Say it together. House they saw the child with his mother, Mary. In other words, get the sequence. On Christmas Eve, Jesus was born in a manger. He was in a feeding trough in a stable, and the Bible says he was visited by the shepherds who were nearby tending their flocks. But notice, the wise men actually arrived some days later. How much later? Again, no one really knows. It may have been a few months, maybe a few days. Some say it could have been up to two years, according to that last detail about Herod. But we know it was at least a few days later because when they meet Jesus and his mother Mary, they're actually in a house. They're not in a stable. Jesus is still in his crib, but he's not in the barn. And this is where we get the tradition known as the 12 days of Christmas. According to early church tradition, the wise men arrived 12 days after Christmas on January 6th. And so that's where we get that tradition where we say, oh, the 12 days of Christmas, that's where it comes from. I know, you were just like, I thought it was on Star 991. 
<laughs> right? Regards to when they arrived, the wise men, you know, must have been elated. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they were what? Say that word, church. They were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they what? They bowed down and worshipped him. The wise men traveled over a thousand miles between nine months and a year across a stretch of treacherous desert to find the one they were looking for, and they found him, a king in a cradle. I want you to imagine, these are learned men. Jesus did not look like a king. His home didn't look like a castle. He had no scepter in his hand, maybe a rattle. (laughs) He commanded no armies. He gave no speeches. He passed no laws. This is a king. At this moment, the creator of the universe can't walk and he can't talk. There's no royal orders coming from his lips. There's just that that gurgling and cooing and (laughs) what babies say, you know? And to the naked eye, Jesus was nothing but just another anonymous peasant child born into straw poverty. But to the wise men, he was a king. His arms moved spastically, right? Like newborns, you see that at times. But they saw that he had more royalty in a cradle than Herod had in his, his palace. Christ had, was greater in his humility than Herod in his hubris. And Christ was more powerful as an infant than Caesar ever was as an emperor. And somehow, these wise men saw into the future, they, in, in deep faith, they saw this infant king, and it says they bowed down and they worshipped him. And the word for bowed down here actually means to fall down and shatter. They were shattered by the idea that the creator of the universe... The all-powerful creator God stepped down from his throne, surrendered his power, his royalty, his rights to come be with us. Amen? Amen. The Magi were seekers of truth, and they found it in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this irony. The Bible experts lived five miles away in Jerusalem. They didn't even bother stopping by because they said, no, 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 no. The Messiah is going to be a great political and military leader, like Alexander the Great. Not a helpless baby born in poverty. But you know what? 2,000 years later, wise men and women still seek him. And when you find the real Jesus, you will respond the way the Magi did, with, with joy, with humble worship, and with gifts. See, this is the most famous part of the story, of course, that put the Magi on the map. Kids, are you excited to open your gifts tomorrow? How many of you are excited to open gifts? You ready tomorrow? Okay. Listen, you're excited to open presents. Here's what verse 11 says. It says, then they opened their treasures and presented Jesus with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, tomorrow morning, you are probably going to be with some family or friends, and you're going to do this kind of gift exchange And you're like, it's a fun tradition, but I got news for you. Again, giving gifts at Christmas did not start with Santa Claus, all right? Or Elf on the Shelf. (gasps) I just ruined it for parents, right? The tradition started with the wise men. It actually says they opened their treasures and they gave, first of all, gold. The early church fathers said the gift of gold represented royalty. It was a sign of wealth and power fit for a king. And gold was the wise men's way of saying, Jesus, you are our king. This is for you. The second one, frankincense. This is actually 
Incense, that's where we get incense from, frankincense. It's a sweet-smelling incense that's used only in temple worship. And they would burn it for a deity. So the wise men probably took their big Duraflame lighter <laughs> and they lit it. And it was interesting, when you burn frankincense in the temple, you actually left it in front of the altar. And the Hebrews regarded the smoke rising up as a symbol of their, their prayers ascending to God. You would only light incense for a deity. And so when they presented him with frankincense, they said, Jesus, you are God. The strangest gift of all is the third one. Because myrrh, again, the strangest gift of all, myrrh is actually a special spice for someone who is about to die. Do you know that? When someone died in the ancient world, they used myrrh to anoint the body and prepare it for burial. And John 19 says that when Jesus died, they took his body down from the cross and they packed it with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So in an amazing way, the, the gift of myrrh actually foreshadows Jesus' suffering and his death on a cross. See, 33 years after his very humble birth in a cradle, Jesus would die a humiliating death on a Roman cross as the perfect sacrifice for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the entire world. And guys, this is the meaning of Christmas. The purpose of the birth of Jesus was ultimately the death of Jesus. The meaning of God's incarnation was his atonement on the cross. Myrrh was the Magi's way of saying Jesus is our sacrifice. And when his body is broken, we're accepted by God into his family. These are the faith of the wise men. These three gifts point to who Christ is. He's our king. He's our God, and he is our sacrifice. And you may be like, well, Tim, did the wise men even understand all that? You know what? Probably not at the time. <laughs> but God arranged that their gifts would point to who Jesus is and why Jesus came, and it requires your response. On Christmas, the question is, like wise men, would you actually be willing to bow down and acknowledge that Jesus is your king? Or like King Herod, will you see him as a threat to your throne? See, if we're honest, we all have a little Herod kind of hidden in our heart, don't we? Like Herod, we all secretly want to stay on the throne of our lives, kind of calling the shots, not Jesus, right? Some of you tonight, you're like, oh, this is where they talk about Jesus. I'm not that serious about that stuff. The Bible says because of our sin nature, we all naturally want to reign over the kingdom of ourself. And we don't want to be threatened by any rivals. And that's why Jesus is threatening to some people. A lot of people are like, you know, I reject Christianity not because of the facts, because of what I might have to give up if I make Jesus my king. Will I have to, you know, change my lifestyle? Uh, will I have to give up my, you know, power, my pride, my money? You know what I find people fear giving up most in their life? Control. <laughs> Control. I know some folks who are afraid to give their life to God because of, of control issues. They don't want somebody else calling the shots or telling them what to do. And I have no judgment for you. I'll just be honest. I have a little piece of Herod's heart in me, and I'm guessing you do too. Not that you're out to kill Christ, but you realize you can't be king of your life and have Jesus reign as king too. God says only one of you can sit on the throne. And so either... You bow your knee to Christ, your king, 
or you protect the Herod in your heart forever. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's a choice we all have. Can I ask, have you made that choice? Can you point to a moment in your life where you became a wise man or a wise woman or a wise child and you bowed your heart in humility and said, Jesus, I make you my king because that's what Christmas is for. That's the gift being offered to you on Christmas Eve. And I want to give you a chance to receive that gift by praying a a simple prayer of salvation to make Jesus king and Lord of your life. You know, tonight I realize in a, in a crowd like this, we're, we're all at different places in our journey to know God. You know, many of you maybe are, you're longtime believers. This is your 50th Christmas or whatever. Or some of you may be new to faith. Or you're even exploring this, you know, the claims of Christianity for the first time. But wherever you're at, let me just encourage you with this thought tonight. If the wise men can find Jesus, so can you. Say that with me. If the wise men can find Jesus, so can you. The Bible says if we seek God sincerely with all of our heart, we will actually find him. So it doesn't matter how far off you feel from God or how distant. When you're searching for God, he he will leave clues. He'll leave hints. He wants to be found. And for the Magi, you know, God sent a star to guide them on Christmas Eve. How did you get here tonight? You probably follow GPS, right? (laughs) Right? But maybe a family member or a friend invited you. Did you know they may have been praying for you? And maybe you came tonight and you said, okay, we're going to sing a few songs. We're going to light a candle. That's awesome. But maybe you actually sense in, in, in your spirit that tonight's different. And it's Christmas Eve. And your heart's open. It's strangely warmed. And you actually never even connect the dots to the real meaning of Christmas. And your heart's open to the thought that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the God you've been looking for. Hey, listen, you may not understand everything. You may still have questions, but that doesn't mean you can't follow Jesus. Think about this. The wise men were pagan astrologers. (laughs) They didn't understand everything, but on Christmas, they found the one they were looking for, and they opened their heart, and they believed. That's what the wise men did. They believed Jesus was king, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was their sacrifice. Guys, that's how you become a Christian. That's how you become a Christ follower, through simple faith in the birth of the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how you can be forgiven by God and born again into his family, according to the Bible. So if the wise men can find Jesus, understand, so can you. And when you find Christ, let me encourage you to do exactly what the Magi did, and that is give God your best gift on Christmas. You know, the Magi gave gold, and they gave frankincense and myrrh. They gave what was most valuable to them, Do you know what's most valuable to God tonight? Your heart. (laughs) You may have come and you're like, oh my gosh, I came empty-handed to Christmas Eve. (laughs) It doesn't matter. God wants your most treasured possession of all, and that is what your heart symbolizes. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your body, it's your emotions. And he's asking you, would you actually open your heart and let my son in? Let Christ be born in your heart at Christmas. That is the greatest gift any human being can give to God. See, at Christmas, we give gifts, but God gives himself. God the Father gave God the Son as a gift to you and to me. John 3.16 says, for God, this is your Father. He so loved the world that he, what? Say the word, gave his one and only Son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Have you received the gift of eternal life? Because remember, the birth of Jesus points to the death of Jesus. And it's on the cross that God made this outrageous gift exchange. Jesus took our sin on himself and gave his life as a gift to you. That's how much God loves you. The cross is saying, it's God saying, he's opening his arms, he's saying, I love you this much. (laughs) If you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this. Christmas is Jesus saying, I love you so much, I'd rather die than live without you. And that's why God gave Christ a Christmas, to forgive your sin and give you the hope of heaven. That's what eternal life is. It's life with God forever. And he says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but receive that gift of eternal life. Did you receive that gift? Have you received that gift? Understand right now, you millions of people down through the ages have followed the wise men to Bethlehem. And they've seen that baby and they have bowed to that king and said, he's my Lord. And you're surrounded by thousands of people in our church family who have put their faith in Christ. We don't have all the answers, but we put all of the faith we have in Christ. And tonight you can join them. You can be a wise man. You can be a wise woman and be born again into the family of God. And that's what I want to give you a chance to do right now. I'd like all of our campuses, I want to pray, and I'd like to ask you just bow your head with me. Would you bow your head for a simple prayer of salvation? Just bow your head. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray right now for your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, that you would just touch the hearts of men and women tonight with your outrageous love and truth. God, some of them have traveled far. Even now, some are feeling drawn to you in a fresh way. Holy Spirit, give them the courage to put their faith in Christ right now. Again, with all of our heads bowed, we're just praying right now. We're creating space to talk with God. If you're here tonight, you realize you have never given your whole heart to Christ. Tonight, you realize that Jesus needs to be born in you. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of salvation. Or a prayer of recommitment. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you're just returning to faith. You know, you, you grew up in a Christian home or you trusted Jesus early in your life, but you've fallen away and you want to come back. This is that moment to recommit your life, regift your heart to him. So I want to pray for you right now. Those who want to give their heart to Christ for the first time and those who want to give their heart again and give it as a fresh prayer of recommitment. I want to lead you right now in a simple prayer. We're going to pray this together out loud, okay? I'm going to pray these words, and then you pray them out loud after me. Again, I'll pray, and then you repeat the words after me. In fact, with all our heads bowed, let's all pray this out loud together as one big family, because that's what we are, in one big loud voice so that nobody feels left out. Are you ready? Pray these words after me. Say, Dear Jesus, Jesus, tonight on Christmas Eve, Eve, I I believe, I believe you were born. I want to be born again. again. Thank you, God, God. for loving me. me. Thank you for sending Jesus Jesus to die for me. me. Jesus, I believe. believe. You died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were raised raised for my new life. life. So forgive me me. and fill my heart. heart. Tonight I give you my whole life. And make you my king king forever. forever. In Jesus' name, name. 
Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, congratulations. You have been born again on Christmas Eve. We welcome you to the family of God. We praise God for you. Praise God for you. I know that's a step of faith. The Bible says you just made the wisest decision you can ever make in your life. The Bible says you've literally been born again into God's family. You're a new creation. So your journey with Jesus is actually just beginning. But what a start, right? You will always be able to point to this moment. Think about that. On Christmas Eve, you'll be able to say, you know what? When Jesus was born, that's when I was born again. And, and, the, and the Bible says that angels in heaven are celebrating. They're rejoicing. And so we've got great reason to celebrate and rejoice with them. So let's do this. All our campuses, would you stand to your feet? Stand to your feet, Liquid Church, as your campus pastor comes to lead us in our Christmas candle lighting.